Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to Backchat. If the Nature Podcast is an evidence-based white paper, Backchat is a live blog with a shouty comments section. This month, Brexit, Trump and a dramatic and possibly dangerous Antarctic rescue. I'm Kerry Smith and my Backchat crew for June contains Richard Van Norden. Hi, I edit Nature's Online News from London. David Adam. Hello, I edit Nature's editorials pages. And on the line from Boulder, Colorado, we have Alex Whitsey. Hi, I'm a correspondent. I cover Earth and planetary sciences, among other things. Great. Coming up then this month, the UK and the US are both soon to make big political decisions. On June the 23rd, this very week, the UK will decide whether to leave or remain in the EU. And later this year, the US will elect a new president. You, you may have heard about that. Of course, there will be effects on science and scientists. And we take a look at what those impacts might be, how much science gets a look in at election time, at referendum time, and how much to believe the polls. Finally, we'll be leaving politics behind as we discuss the planned rescue of a sick scientist from Antarctica in the middle of their winter. So first up to Brexit then. Um, Richard Van Norden, it's pretty clear, isn't it, that scientists around Europe would rather like the UK to stay. Nature ran a survey in March and an overwhelming majority of UK researchers are in favour of Britain remaining in the UK remaining in the EU and also the overwhelming majority of EU researchers that we asked them. I think we got more than 2,000 overall. And from the point of view of research and science, it probably makes sense for the UK to stay. It is a big winner from the EU's research budget, but also it benefits from the mobility and freedom of movement and collaboration that the EU has fostered. So researchers are overwhelmingly in favour of the UK remaining, and I think 5,000 of them wrote into the Times to say so. I think that scientists have been very vocal uh, in this referendum and I think that scientists have become more and more vocal in UK elections and UK referendums and the Scottish referendum, perhaps surprisingly so if you're looking at the UK from outside. So um, not only, Richard, as you say, do researchers heartily endorse Remain, but Nature also does so, doesn't it, David? And it's um, it's been up to you to write the editorial. We we did, yes. We um, so Nature um, perhaps infamously doesn't like to weigh in on um, purely political debates, um, but in this case, we made an exception. And I think the reason for that was that 
in in things like general elections, there, there's a huge amount of uncertainty about what the result might mean. Whereas in this case, I think it's pretty clear. In fact, in fact, we are voting on an outcome. And as Richard was just saying, the the vast majority of scientists who are our readers uh, want us to remain. So yeah, so so we wrote an editorial which, which pointed out. Hopefully, both the, the scientific arguments and, and the broader what we think of as the moral and ethical arguments to staying in and, and to keeping what seems to be a pretty effective scientific system. Did you have to have a lot of discussions about the way you were going to frame this, whether you were going to write this at all? Because, as you say, nature somewhat famously doesn't often weigh in on these inverted commas purely political matters. Well, I, I think we we had trailed this already you know we've written a couple of pieces including at least one editorial looking at this issue before because it's been on the agenda for a long time in which i think we pointed out the benefits um so i should say it wasn't me who wrote the editorial you know again nature's editorials they're not written they just sort of condense out of the uh, the combined brain power of of everyone here um and yeah well we, you know we consulted um and as always, some people disagreed. You know, the, the morning it appeared, I got one angry email from a colleague saying, you know, once again, I find myself completely disagreeing with the editorial line of the magazine I write for. Awkward. Well, I'm used to it. <laughs> <laughs> now, in terms of um, weighing up the evidence, one line of evidence that's been that's interesting to look at in advance of the referendum, which is rapidly approaching, is the polls. Um, and the FT, the Financial Times, has a poll of the polls. And it's interesting to see that moving over time. Um, Richard, as someone who is um, pretty up on kind of data and its uses, what take do you have on kind of how the polls are doing here? For me, the interesting question here is that the polls are giving a very different picture of the closeness of this race than are the bookmakers. Uh, if you look at the uh, odds, the betting odds, Remain is well ahead. It's not close at all. If you look at the polls, uh, they swing one way and then the other in different polls. Uh, I'm not sure this is true in recent weeks, but um, before, uh, certainly last month, I believe that the online polls were showing a slight tendency towards leave and the uh, phone polls were showing a slight tendency towards Remain. So there was a slight difference there. And people have been talking about, um, are these samples reliable very hard for pollsters to correct for any known biases since there just isn't any such recent referendum to take into account. As you, as you can with a national election, you can learn from previous national elections about how your polls might be, your poll sample might be biased wrongly. Here, that's not possible. So it's going to be very interesting to see whatever the result is. Um, if it isn't as close as the polls say, then there's a real question for the pollsters who in the UK's national election, in the Scottish referendum, and maybe now, I don't know, maybe for a third time in this Leave Remain referendum, may have got it substantially wrong all three times. And then you get to this sort of interesting question of, well, what are the what are the pollsters for? We're paying them all this money and they're not just guiding our opinions, but they're also perhaps influencing who goes out and votes. Um, so it could be a worrying time for the pollsters if the result turns out not to be very close at all. Should we listen to the bookies instead? Are they doing better? Well, the bookies did much better for the national election. Uh, they were much closer to the real proportions of the votes. The thing is with the bookies, though, is that, at least as I understand it, um, although bookmakers set odds originally, you know, that the odds that you see are very heavily influenced by the amount of money that's been placed. 
because the bookies have to make money out of this. So they hedge the odds to make sure that their losses aren't going to be too great either way or preferably their winnings are going to be the best either way. And so I, I think the difference with a poll or at least difference with voting is that it, it would be perfectly possible for one person to significantly affect the odds. You know, if one person was to put a million pounds on uh, Remain, the odds would shorten hugely in response to that, whereas that person only has one vote. Do you think that there'll be any repercussions on UK science, even if the vote says Remain, Richard? Yeah, we were just discussing that. So if the votes remain, then there still might be questions for non-UK scientists in the EU about how they perceive the country's attitude to welcoming them um, to work in the UK. I think this has led to a big national debate about how welcoming the UK is to immigrants. But I do think that, uh, and and we've seen in recent years, for example, um, students from India coming to the UK, the numbers have really gone down. But that's probably as much to do with the debate about immigration and the Prime Minister's targets to try and cut immigrants coming into the UK, very unrealistic targets. And that, I think, might still continue to be the UK's policy, even if there was a, a Remain vote. So shall we start an office poll then and how we think the referendum shall come out? Well, you get better odds at the bookie, I think. We were just describing that. <laughs> now, when um, when Donald Trump was asked about his position on Brexit by the Hollywood Reporter in early June, he actually um, he didn't know what it meant. They had to tell him um, that it meant that the, that the UK was thinking of leaving the EU. He said, in his opinion, surprise, surprise, Britain would be better off without the EU. So one of the more predictable things he said. And just to kind of contrast it a bit, I suppose, with with Brexit, whereas UK scientists have been quite vocal, as you were saying, Richard, there doesn't seem to be this kind of a frustrating lack of a science angle for you guys working for a, a science magazine and covering the US election this time around. Would you agree? Yeah, I definitely say that there is so much insanity in the presidential race this time around in the US that uh, science is probably the last thing that's on the list. Uh, there's been such a carnival of um, characters coming through uh, from the 16 who started in the Republican presidential side that we've now narrowed down to Donald Trump. And then Hillary Clinton as well, too, who's uh, been a fixture in U.S. politics for so long. Uh, science is definitely down there. Uh, issues such as you know immigration and job security, homeland security, terrorism, gun control, um, are far more on voters' minds than than, than sciences. And although uh, each presidential election, uh, some of us hope and think that, you know, climate, science and other topics might be a, a big key in the presidential race. In, in reality, it's just not that high on voters' agendas. If one does go looking, though, I mean, what what kind of science is being talked about by each of the candidates? Are there any issues that are making it uh, into into more public forum? So one that people have talked about a bit, of course, is um, is immigration, especially immigration for, for skilled laborers and, um, and technicians. Uh, this is an issue that both Clinton and Trump have weighed in on, saying that, you know, having a having a highly skilled workforce is really important to the U.S. and to the U.S. economy. And that tends to spill down into questions of, you know, how much will they support higher education? Um, um, in terms of climate, Hillary Clinton has, of course, uh, come out, as you might expect for someone on the left, has come out in favor of, of regulating greenhouse gases. She's been uh, fairly outspoken on the climate issue, especially in just the last couple of months, more so than she was early on in the campaign. Uh, Trump, for his side, uh, hasn't said too much publicly, although his uh, main advisor, or at least one of his main advisors on climate, 
has been a, a, a congressman from North Dakota where there's been a, a lot of drilling for oil and gas recently. And, uh, and that congressman is, is pretty well known for, for climate change denying views. So we suspect that Trump is getting advised by, um, you know, by oil and gas exploration folks and that the, the climate scientists are perhaps not number one on his list of people to call. Guys, and, and, uh, in the UK here, any, any ongoing issues in how you feel like covering the US election is different this time around to, to previous elections? Well, I, I think there is the, there's a similarity uh, almost with the way the Brexit debate has played out in that if you take science in its most broadest definition, science is about the rigorous gathering and testing of ideas against evidence. And, and I think, you know, it used to be the case even quite recently that, that people, even if they disagreed with the mainstream position, they would try and find their own evidence to, to back up their assertions. Whereas we seem to have completely moved beyond that now. People are happy to make assertions with no evidence and or, or, or evidence that is shown to be completely incorrect. And they just merrily carry on. And it used to be, you know, a, a gaffe like that would be enough to seriously dent someone's uh, popularity or, or credibility. Whereas now there's this sort of general disdain against experts. You know, we hear it a lot with the Brexit debate and I know Trump's been talking about it. You know, we're going to reclaim... I, I don't know where it's come from. Maybe it's this sort of democratisation of knowledge or the internet or, or whatever. Everyone feels that, they're, that they have a say, which of course is, is, is a good thing on some topics. But there's some topics that, well, I think we would like to think that perhaps some opinions carry more weight than others. I mean, <laughs> I was going to say maybe that suggests that uh, expert advice is all very well when you are consulting on or want to make your mind up about a very technical subject that you don't have strong emotional views on. But as soon as um, something comes in that you have a strong emotional pull, uh, expert advice can fly out the window. I would add that there's an interesting dichotomy here between what people say and what they do as well, too, because in public opinion polls, at least in the U.S., um, scientists and, and experts more generally are, are often um, described as being in high regard among the public, that people actually respect science and the work of scientists. And yet when it comes to developing and implementing public policy, that kind of general, oh, yes, we think, you know, researchers who know something maybe should have an input um, does tend to go out the window. You know, there's there, there's a lot of discussion, especially um, in the administration of George W. Bush, there was this a uh, big outcry about the supposed Republican war on science, you know, not taking scientific advice from experts. So on the one hand, you have people saying in public polls, again, should we trust the polls, uh, that they think, you know, science is really cool and scientific expertise should be, you know, taken into consideration. And on the other hand, you have the policymakers for whom it just is not a pressing concern at all. It seems like people are happy to celebrate the results of science, but they haven't really thought about how the f- results get to where they are, like the evidence base that underlies them. And they're not, worry- they're not worrying about transferring that framework into other aspects of their lives. That's exactly it. I think it comes down to what we've seen with Brexit is generally science for science's sake. So doing science, finding cures, you know, researching the universe, which most people would say, hey, that's great. But um, as well, what Alex was saying, people like experts until they want to say you can't drive your car as much. And in this kind of gleefully fact-free environment, like where would you draw the line between reporting something that you know to be false and trying to disprove it or amassing evidence against it, but still putting it out there or just not covering it at all? Yeah, so I would say that the uh, the US media, at least um, a number of them have been trying to sort of do real time fact checking. And if you look at the coverage from from daily newspapers or from the, the cable TV channels, depending on which one you happen to be watching at any given time, there is a level of kind of real time calling out of some of these 
you know, flagrantly, you know, incorrect facts uh, going on. Um, you know, from our perspective as nature, um, I, it would be amazing if some of the candidates decided to say something, you know, detailed, even if it were wrong about science and the role they thought science should play, so that we could at least fact check it. Uh, at the moment, we're kind of just stuck waiting for them to say something at least relevant at all to our readership. Wow, what a dire, what a dire situation where we're just waiting for them to lie about science. <laughs> say anything. I'm going to give a shout out at this point to um, factcheck.org and, and the UK version, which is called Full Fact. And I sort of fell down a fact checking hole earlier today, uh, learning about Trump's claims that California has, quote, plenty of water and that wind, wind farms kill one million birds a year. The correct estimate has an upper bound of more like half a million uh, maximum. And even he's got some, some claims, made some claims about how the hairspray that he uses in his apartment, because it's completely all sealed, doesn't affect uh, the ozone hole at all. Now, if the Brexit story isn't current enough for you, uh, the final story concerns this rescue attempt ongoing uh, from the Antarctic, where a, a sick researcher, hopefully she'll be uh, airlifted from the South Pole. Alex, you've been covering this for us. Yes, that's right. So the story is that it's the middle of winter at the South Pole. So as you can imagine, it's very cold and very dark. And the National Science Foundation Research Station there normally uh, doesn't see a plane coming in for, you know, about six months of the year because it's too cold and too dark for planes to land. But what has happened is that at least one of the 48 people who is at the station this winter, who's overwintering, one of the polies, as they call them, uh, is apparently quite sick, sick enough that the NSF is going to send in a plane. And uh, that plane took off this morning from the British Antarctic Survey Station of Rothera on the Antarctic Peninsula, and it's on its way to the pole right now as we speak. How long is the trip? Uh, it's about 10 hours. It depends on the headwinds. Uh, these are little planes. They actually don't use the big military planes that are normally used for supplying the uh, South Pole uh, because it's just too darn cold. It's uh, often, you know, 50, 60, almost 70 degrees Celsius below, and the hydraulics of the big military jets just can't work in those temperatures. So these are tiny little bush planes that they brought down from, from Canada where they do a lot of Arctic work. Uh, the pilots are really experienced in flying in bad conditions, but there's no denying that this is a really... Uh, difficult and daring rescue mission, and that the uh, agency wouldn't be trying it if there weren't somebody really sick at the pole. It's only been done twice before. They haven't released, have they? The NSF hasn't said what's actually wrong with this person they're trying to evacuate. No, they haven't said who it is or what they're sick with. Um, but just as, as an example of the kind of things that can go wrong at the pole, maybe most famously in 1999, there was a doctor, Jerry Nielsen. She actually developed breast cancer when she was at the pole for the winter. And uh, the agency had no way to get anything to her. So they ended up doing an airlift. They did stuff like anti-cancer drugs and an ultrasound machine. And they flew the jets over and they dropped six pallets down onto the ice for her to treat herself. And uh, she managed to make it through the winter until the until the sun came up and they could get her out again. And then just two years later, there was a, again, it was the doctor at the station. A man this time came down with pancreatitis. And although he seemed to be okay, they were so worried about him relapsing, they sent a plane in. And in 2001, that was sort of the first daring rescue down on the South Pole ice. If you can imagine this tiny plane flying through the, the polar night, and it has to land with skis on this runway in the pitch black. And so the, the, the crew members sort of bring out these barrels of oil, and they light them so they have flaming barrels so they can see the runway to land on. And they manage to land, and they have to refuel the plane and get some rest. And then when they try to take off again, the plane had actually frozen to the runway. So they had to 
go up against it and rock the plane back and forth to unstick it from the ice. And it finally managed to take off and that it rescued that guy in 2001. And that was the first sort of time this has ever happened. Um, David, you've actually been, haven't you, for a story that you wrote for The Guardian? I mean, did you get a sense of isolation, glorious or otherwise? Yeah, so I, I spent um, a week at Rothera, which is where these two planes have just taken off from. Um, now, as Antarctica goes, Rothera is is probably the closest you would get to a resort almost. I mean, it's right on the coast. Uh, what most people don't realise about Antarctica is that it's a giant dome and actually the South Pole is is at 3,000 metres out of altitude. And actually when people fly in there, quite often it's altitude sickness that gets them rather than the cold or anything. So uh, it, it was very benign where I was, but th- there are visible demonstrations that it's a very dangerous place. You know, th- th- there's a large hill next to the rather research station with a cross on it and they write the names of, of people who died. Um, you know, a few years before I went there, uh, a plane barely cleared an iceberg in front of the runway and crashed and people died that were on it. Um, I went there in the Antarctic summer, but um, during the winter that had just preceded the, the, the one I was there, they, the, they lost a British scientist at the base. She was taken by a leopard seal. Um, and that was during the winter, so they actually had to... It wasn't a rescue because very sadly they were taking away her body. And so they, they flew a mission in, in, in the middle of winter to land at Rothera. I, I really, really hope, I mean, by the time this goes out, it, they should have landed at the South Pole safely. But, I mean, it's worth saying that there are, there are two planes involved in this and one of them is on standby for search and rescue in case anything happens to the first plane. It really is a, a very, very dangerous and unpredictable place to try flying little aeroplanes around. Yeah, when we started talking about it, we we said the Twin Otters had left from Rothera and we kind of skipped over the fact that it's a, a mission and a half to even get there. Alex, has, has uh, research capacity uh, been upped over the last decade or so in Antarctica? Are there more and more scientists going out there or is it such an inhospitable place that uh, we're never going to see large numbers of researchers or other people there? So uh, at least on the U.S. side, South Pole Station has been uh, pretty uh, constant over the last couple of seasons. They've got about, you know, 50-ish people who overwinter, and then it, it goes up by at least three times that amount in the summer. Uh, in the winter at the South Pole, astronomy is the thing, uh, because most of the experiments there, for instance, the, uh, the Ice Cube Neutrino Observatory from the University of Wisconsin, there are a number of telescopes, the South Pole Telescope and other observatories, because it's so dark for so long, astronomy is the thing to do at the polar night. And South Pole Station itself, as David said, because it's so high in elevation, uh, gets you really great observing conditions. So South Pole Station has pretty much got a, a limit on the number of people it can handle. Um, on the U.S. side, the big changes, of course, are at McMurdo Station, which is the big uh, central area. It's much closer to the coast. Uh, and that is actually about to go undergo a giant rebuild. Uh, a lot of the uh, infrastructure there is from like the 50s and 60s and 70s. It's uh, old and cramped and the scientists complain about, you know, they don't have much space to work or sleep. So there's about to be a big rebuild at McMurdo and that is going to probably affect a lot of the scientists who are going through it in the coming years. 
personally, you know, sitting as we are in a very small room, I'd be more than happy to spend at least five weeks in here with you guys if we were snowed in. Alex, you get the liberty of being on the phone, so you're completely free. Uh, thank you all for joining me, Richard Van Norden, David Adam and Alex Witsey. Uh, and if our audience want even more of your coverage and your chats, where should they go to hunt you down on Twitter or otherwise, Richard? You can follow me on Twitter at at RichVN. David? I'd recommend following Richard. <laughs> and Alex? I'm at Alex Witze. That's A-L-E-X-W-I-T-Z-E. And of course, all of their collective coverage is available at nature.com slash news. And I'm at Carry on Twitter. If you're a fan of the show, do head over to iTunes and leave us a review or a rating. We'd be thrilled. I'm Kerry Smith. Thanks for listening. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company. They offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.